This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Meadows from Top Step. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. And boy, do we have a great interview for you. In this week's Rewind episode, Eddie talks with Annie Duke, who is a world-class poker player. She's the winner of the 2004 World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. She's also an avid student of psychology, and that's what this interview focuses on, her research into why we make decisions, how we make decisions, and how we should think more in terms of bets. For us traders out there, it's really a can't-miss episode, and I'm excited to present this to you guys today. But before we do, I'd like to offer a couple thoughts on the trading week. Unlike the greens this weekend at Augusta National, markets this week were slow. What do I do in slow weeks? Mainly, I try not to overtrade. Overtrading has killed more accounts than probably any other trading sin. When we're making profits, overtrading typically means that we're risking more than we should. When we're in a drawdown, it means we're probably revenge trading. But either way, we're looking for opportunities that don't exist. That's when it's a great time to make the switch to simulated trading or turn on replay mode if you're in a trading platform like TS Trader. That'll keep you active in the markets without having to risk your live or active trading combine capital. So without further ado, let's throw it over to Eddie for his interview with poker legend and psychology student, Annie Duke. Annie Duke, celebrity, producer, author. You may have heard of Annie as the winner of the 2004 World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions, or you might have come across one of her books she has written. You might remember her on Celebrity Apprentice, but what you may not know is she's been a longtime student of psychology, studying her Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I'd like to welcome the queen of decision-making, Annie Duke. Annie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm stoked, stoked to have you on here with us uh, to do this podcast. And uh, it's sort of a different angle we're taking here uh, about decision making. Now, Annie, um, I'm going to start this off with a deep question. Okay. All right. Ready? Now, Uh why is our decision making so flawed? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, so... Well, well, I mean, first of all, let's just say like as a species, we've done pretty well. So while our decision making is flawed, there are some some ways in which I think we're we're pretty good. But um, you know what? I think I think a lot of the problem has to do with uh, we evolved to deal with the ki- kinds of decisions that are super different than the kinds of decisions that we're dealing with uh, now. So. There were certain um, types of errors that were kind of better than others when you're sort of trying to design a brain that's going to be efficient more than accurate. So uh, there's there was this real selection for efficiency over accuracy. So like a, a good example I can give to you of that is that evolution is going to favor heavily something called false positives over false negatives. So, you know, false positives are when you uh, think that something is a signal when it's not. And false negatives are when you think that something isn't a single signal when it is. So imagine uh, you're on the savanna and you hear rustling 
in the leaves uh, or in the grasses and you stand there and ponder <laughs> trying to go through the decision right. in a very deliberate way, whether that mm. is a lion that's going to come and eat you. Um, if you do that, you're dead. So instead, if you just run away, a lot of the time that's not going to be a lion, but that's going to be a better mechanism for survival than if you stand around and try to figure it out. And so now we're in this very, very complex world trying to make very, very complex decisions. And I, honestly, I just don't think that we've really kind of caught up to the environment. And that's true also if you look at, we evolved for very small tribes. Now we you know, are, are obviously connected in this huge way to lots and lots of people. And I think that that mucks things up. So you know, what I would say it really comes down to is that we just really get tripped up by uncertainty. I mean, if you think about that problem of standing on the savanna and, you know, you hear rustling in the grass, you're not yep. certain. It's not certain whether there's a lion there or not. And and we just we just have a lot of trouble with the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty out in the world. Now, so what you're saying is uh, we are forever evolving our decision making. Well, I think that in general, we're just forever evolving kind of period. And, uh, you know, you can think about evolution and engineering and, and the speed with which we've now been able to engineer um, the world. You know, I think it just takes a while for, you know, you got to kind of catch up to it. And um, there are certain ways in which you do get rewarded for efficiency over accuracy. And I think that that I think that that can be problematic when we're trying to deal with, you know, the kinds of decisions that have to do with forecasting, which are really important in terms of like, you know, what, what, what options, what strategic decisions are you going to make? And those are very, very complex, long-term decisions that then you have to execute it on in the moment. And I, I think that that's really hard. I don't think that we're built well for it. Just want to compare, I guess, those that were watching that, uh, that person in the Savannah listening to the rustling in the grass, not moving and uh, getting eaten by the lion. Sort of yeah. the ones that sort of, uh, you know what, maybe we should move next time because uh, Chuck got it. And, uh, you know, Chuck was a good guy and he's 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 lying dinner right now. Yeah, I, I would say that what you could think about it more is that the people who were kind of jumpy, you know, the the ones who were more likely like Chuck was very likely to run away. And so he did. And so that meant that he was much more likely to be able to reproduce. So he like passed a false positive gene onto his offspring, like a jumpy gene, like just run away, run away. And the runs who were like, Hmm, let me ponder. Mm, and, you know, yeah. let me go talk to Sophocles and try to figure out whether there's a lion there. Like, you know, they were right. dead. So then they, they couldn't actually reproduce. And so, uh, so those genes would have been, you know, really heavily selected for. And I think that um, there's all sorts of ways and, and it really kind of comes down to sort of that problem that um, we weren't really built to be making these decisions that were like incredibly long-term. Uh, it was about kind of like moment-to-moment -moment survival. And as we then become these human beings who are, you know, operating in this world where we're trying to think about what are our long-term goals, what are our values, how do we execute on those? Uh, it becomes really hard because, we have this very, very thin layer of prefrontal cortex, which deals with these kinds of deliberative decisions. And there's not a lot of it. And it's really overtaxed. And we have these biases toward taking shortcuts because shortcuts are really good when you're trying to survive in the moment. But they're they're kind of bad when you're trying to process the world in, in, a, in a super rational way. 
you know, so it's sort of like, it's weird. It's like the most rational person is not the one who's necessarily most likely to pass on their genes. Not, not at least, you know, 10,000, 30,000 years ago. And so now what do we do? You know, and and it's kind of hard. It's like evolution was great because here we are, but then, you know, it designed our brains with this particular type of software that maybe isn't the the most ideal like operating system for the world that we're living in Mm -hmm. now. If we could, um, I'd like to jump in the time machine, fast forward to modern days. Yeah, um, there you go. Here we are. Here we are. We're in the Jetsons now. Oh, I went too far. Darn it. Uh, hold on. Let's re- rewind again. Now, there's a story in, in your book about a gentleman named Pete Carroll. Oh, poor Pete Carroll. Yes. Poor Pete Carroll. Some of us that are listening, sports fans are going, oh, Pete Carroll. Uh, we're talking about the worst decision in football history. Um, you mentioned how we only think it's it's the worst call in history because of the outcome. Now, let's dig into that because in trading, we also have to divorce the outcome from our process for making a decision. We can have good trades that have bad outcomes and vice versa, the bad trades that have good outcomes. So, Annie, could you give us the background here and then Why did you find that story so important to lead off with? Yeah, so I I actually found that story so important that not only did I lead off with it, but I I close the book referring to it. I mean, it it really, it's woven all the way through the whole book because I think that it's really the crux of the problem. So just to sort of set the scene for people, as they probably recall, um, it's 2015, you know, Super Bowl 49. The Seahawks are playing the Patriots, you know, because like the Patriots are in every single Super Bowl. Uh, um, Anyway, so the Seahawks are on the Patriots one yard line with 26 seconds left in the whole game. So it's, it's the fourth quarter, 26 seconds left. And the Seahawks are down by four. And it's actually important that they only have one timeout. It's just an important piece of information. So obviously the situation is a field goal ain't going to do it because that's only going to get you three points. So right. they have to score a touchdown here. Right. Uh, 26 seconds left is not so much time. It's second down. So um, they've got a maximum of three plays. But as you know, with 26 seconds left and, and one timeout, uh, three plays is going to be hard to, to get in. So there's an expected play here. And the expected play is that Russell Wilson will hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. Marshawn Lynch is one of the greatest short yardage running backs in the history of the game. Undoubtedly. Yeah. And they'll hand it off to him. He'll try to power through the Patriots defensive line and voila, the Seahawks will, you know, maybe win the game. But Pete Carroll actually calls a very unexpected play here. Uh, He actually chooses to have Russell Wilson pass the ball. um, And Russell Wilson does that. And as people might recall, it ends in spectacular disaster. Yeah, as Malcolm mm-hmm. Butler intercepts the, the ball and that's the game ender. Now, here's the deal. Chris Collingsworth in the game right after this play is just, right. yes, he's like, I can't believe this play. You've got Marshawn Lynch. How could you not hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch? I don't even understand what Pete Carroll was doing. That's just going to go down as one of the worst calls in the history of the game. Okay, let's maybe give, Chris Collingsworth, the benefit of the doubt here, because he's actually calling it in the moment. So he hasn't had a lot of time to sort of step back from this and think about whether this is a good play or not. 
But the next day, when you looked at, you know, USA Today, the Seattle Times, the Washington Post, you know, the New York Times, et cetera, you saw that they were all really, the Monday morning quarterback looked a lot like Chris Collingsworth right afterwards. And it was, you know, it seemed to be kind of like there was an argument breaking out about whether it was the worst call in Super Bowl history or just the worst call in football history, period. So not a lot of voices saying, oh, no, hold on a second. Was it really a bad call? Um, there were two main voices that were talking about that. One was um, Benjamin Morris at 538, and the, the other was uh, Brian Butler at, um, uh, at Slate. So, so let's actually take a look at this, because I think that this is a really important thing to understand at the basis of what really goes wrong when we're trying to learn from the outcomes of our lives, right? When we're trying to learn from the feedback that the world is giving us, this is such a huge problem in terms of sort of seeing into how we get tripped up. And and this is a problem which is called resulting. So here's what we know. The quality of the result, the quality of the outcome here is very, very bad. And what you can see is this reaction from people saying the quality of the result was really bad and then and then deriving the quality of the decision from the quality of the result without necessarily really thinking through well at the moment of the decision what were the possible outcomes and how how likely were those outcomes and if those outcomes occurred kind of what would happen next so right. so we could think about that right so here's here's thing number 1 that might give you a little hint that maybe the decision wasn't so bad. Thing number one is that the probability of an interception in that particular situation is between one and 2%. So right there, you should say, wow, that's a super low probability event. How much should a one or 2% chance of an interception really be swaying Pete Carroll's decision about whether he passes or not? And I hope the answer is hmm, probably not too much. Now, the question is, what are you getting in exchange for that 1% or 2% that you're having to pay in order to do the pass play? And it turns out that you're getting a lot. So in the case where the ball is not caught for a touchdown, what happens? It's incomplete. And when it's incomplete, what happens? The clock stops. And when the clock stops, it happens very quickly because we know that these types of pass plays don't run a lot of time off of the clock. So when it's actually incomplete, when, when it fails in the normal fashion, which is just an incomplete pass, the clock is going to stop. Remember, they've only got one timeout left. But what that means is that they can now run two more plays in order to try to get it into the end zone. In other words, they can hand it off to Marshawn Lynch mm -hmm. and try to have him go through. And if he, if he doesn't get in, they can call a timeout, timeout and get a second chance at it. Now, if they start with the running play, we know that running plays take a long time. And by the time the running play fails and they call the timeout, they're only going to have time for one more play. So by calling the pass play first, what Pete Carroll is getting is three shots at the end zone instead of one, instead of two, rather. And he's only costing himself this one or 2% chance of a touchdown. So obviously your listeners are going to understand that that's a nearly free option at an extra play. So hopefully everybody's sitting here going, huh, actually that's not such a bad play after right. all. Right. And what we can see is that we get really swung around. We get like, I think about it as a gravity well. It's like once you know what the quality of the outcome is, you get pulled down into this gravity well where you can't see out of it into what the decision quality is anymore because it just completely pulls you into to this darkness where 
I can't, I can't shine a light anymore on what the decision would have looked like because I'm so swayed and so influenced by what the quality of the decision is. And I think we can see this if I just do this simple thought experiment with you. Imagine that Pete Carroll calls the pass play and Russell Wilson passes the ball and it's caught for a touchdown. What do you think people are saying the next day? Genius is brilliant. We win. Great job. We beat the Patriots. That's right. And actually, we kind of know that's true. Because if you watch this year's Super Bowl, hmm. you saw the Eagles. Of course, your team. Right. Run this thing called the Philly Special where everybody thought they were going to go for a field goal Ooh, yes. um, at the end of the second quarter. They mm-hmm. were also on the one yard line. It was fourth down. Um, and on fourth down, they decided not to take the extra three. Um, and they went for this weird play, the Philly Special, where, you know, all of a sudden the quarterback, Nick Foles, is in the end zone and he catches the ball for a touchdown. And you can hear exactly that. Chris Collingsworth. Same guy is like, this is so brilliant. This is why Doug Peterson is so great, blah, blah, blah. And then the Philly special and everybody's talking about the same thing. But the fact is that at the moment that Pete Carroll, you know, makes that call, it's like, you know, one to 2% of the time it's an interception. And then half-ish of the time it's caught uh, for a touchdown and half of the time it's incomplete and the clock stops and they hand it off to Marshawn Lynch on the next play. Um, And that's true no matter what the outcome is. And this is the problem is that we're all resulters. Resulting is exactly what I just said, that somehow thinking that whether that ball is caught or whether that ball is intercepted or whether that ball is dropped, that this somehow changes the quality of the decision at the time that you make the decision, but it doesn't. And you don't really know much from the quality of an outcome Mm -hmm. when it's only one, when all we have is one data point. It's like saying I flipped a coin, it flipped heads. So, oh, therefore I should call heads every single time that that, you know, coin is flipped. What? No, that it doesn't tell us anything. It was only one flip. The word probabilities comes to mind and yeah, you broke it down really well on some decisions we make uh, at that present time. We're like, oh, why did I do that? You know, later on, we take a look uh, at, you know what, that wasn't such a bad decision. But how can we start to think more in terms of probabilities? And is that the key to being okay with bad outcomes? The short answer is yes, I really think so. Um, so I think that people are really get into this defensive crouch about really worrying about having bad outcomes. I think partly because they think they're going to get the Pete Carroll treatment. Um, you know, it's going to go badly and everybody's going to like point their fingers at them and say it was your fault. Or they're going to give themselves the Pete Carroll treatment, which is that feeling of like, I should have known. How could I not have seen that coming? I'm so dumb. You know, all these kinds of things that we say to ourselves. And I think that there's a couple of problems that happen to people as they're sort of prospectively trying to make a decision and they're not embracing the uncertainty. Right. I think that number one is that they can make decisions that are just sort of meant to swat away the possibility that somebody could blame them for it. So that could be either sticking with the status quo. In other words, like not making a decision, because if you don't make a decision, then you can't certainly be blamed for the outcome or, you know, that sort of old thing of like that desire to fail conventionally. So if you think about the Pete Carroll case, the conventional choice would have been to hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. And had he done that and failed, he probably wouldn't have gotten a lot of flack for it. And I think that we do that a lot in our own lives where we don't really want to take chances and we don't really want to go down a new route because uh, we're afraid that we're going to get blamed for that. But if we do something, even if we're building false consensus, uh, we feel that that gives us some kind of, you know, some sort of um, protection against it. So that's like a big distortion that happens because we're not comfortable with the fact that there's a range of outcomes that occur and not just one that will occur. Right. So 
a lot of this problem is whenever I make a decision, there's many, many, you know, there's multiple outcomes that could occur, even though only one will actually occur, right? That's the probabilistic nature of the world. And so that's sort of number one is I think that it can put us in this defensive crouch. And then number two, there's sort of two other things that I think can happen um, that, that come from sort of not being comfortable with uncertainty. Thing number one is that you just go around saying like, I guarantee it. I'm a hundred percent sure as if somehow you have more control over the outcome than you do. And I think that when you do that, you fail to explore the other types of ways that things could turn out because you're so focused on guaranteeing that this is the right way to go. And it's going to turn out this exact way. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem because then you're not prepared for the other ways it could go. In other words, you end up living a reactive life where you're reacting and sort of surprised by these outcomes that you hadn't considered as opposed to being nimble, as opposed to imagining, okay, if it goes this this way that isn't necessarily favorable to me, what is my plan in advance? Number one. And then also number two on the reactivity is I think that you end up having these very bad emotional reactions to it because you haven't really considered it in advance. And it makes it very hard to deal with things when things don't go your way because you haven't processed it in advance. You aren't prepared for it. You aren't acknowledging mm-hmm. in any kind of real way that things can turn out a lot of different ways that I, I can, I can be driving along and I can go through a green light and I can still get in an accident. And I need to sort of consider that in my decision process. Um, and then the other thing, the third thing that I think can happen um, when you're not embracing uncertainty is that you can get into decision paralysis. And I, I think that decision paralysis actually comes from this false sense, this false goal of thinking that you should be a hundred percent sure that the decision that you're making is right, is that it's going to turn out well and that it's the right choice. And once you sort of acknowledge there's nothing that I can be a hundred percent sure of and the best decisions, you know, like Pete Carroll's decision that only has a one to 2% chance of failure, it can still fail. Then what happens is that I I think that it gets you out of this thing of like, I can't make a decision because I can't be sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead say, my question should be, am I sure enough? And that's what you should really be asking yourself. So, you know, if I'm trying to decide between A and B, and A, I think is going to have some range of good outcomes, you know, 55% of the time, and B is going to have some range of good outcomes, 35% of the time, I can either say, no, I need to be sure that A is going to be 100% good. Or I can say, look, my two choices are A and B and one's 55% to turn out well and one's 35% to turn out well. So that seems like a super clear choice. And once you start thinking that way, you can develop this confidence and decisiveness actually exactly because you have acknowledged the uncertainty and wrapped it into your decision process. Now, decision process. I know a lot of us have come into the situation where somebody has said something to us and uh, we've sort of replied back uh, later on. We mull about it and uh, you tell ourselves, man, you know, like I could have said this, but in situations like that, we got to move on. Now, Annie, being a teacher, you've helped so many people in different settings on how to control and limit actions for better outcomes. Now, what are some of the most important things to remember to be consistent in our decision-making? Oh, that's a really broad question. Um, (laughs) So number one is relating to what we just said is really start to change the way that you approach the decision, moving away from, am I sure, to how sure am I? Right. And I know that that sounds like kind of a small difference, but it's not. Am I sure 
it's sort of like demanding to yourself that you somehow get to 100%. Whereas when you shift that, when you just do that little change in the way you think to how sure am I, what happens is that it's really about sort of trying to figure out what your level of certainty is in comparison to other choices that you might make, being comfortable with the fact that the goal is not to be sure, but to identify properly how sure you are. And then that actually drives you to do something really important. There's sort of two places that we go wrong. One is kind of not acknowledging the luck in the way that things might turn out. And how sure am I forces you to, to acknowledge luck, right? Because, because that obviously you need to think about how much luck is in the outcome in order to understand how sure you are of the way that something might turn out. You can't logically answer that question otherwise. And I think that's really important. But the other thing is that there's all sorts of hidden information that affects our ability to make good decisions, right? So when information is hidden from view, when there's information asymmetry, it impedes our ability to make the perfect decision because we don't have perfect information. When you start saying to yourself, instead of, am I sure? You say, how sure am I? What you start to do is try to narrow down the uncertainty that you have in trying to answer that question. So you start saying, well, you know, I'm 40% on this. Could I get a little better? Could I get to 45? Could I get to 50%? What types of information would I need to go find in order to make myself feel more sure of this, to narrow down the uncertainty for myself? What other people could I ask? What other perspectives could I get? And it forces you to start kind of approaching the world. And this is not a small thing. Instead of saying, why am I right? Asking actually, why am I wrong? And I think that that's a huge change for people to make. We're very good at listening to why we're right. We see this in our political discourse, right? Everybody's making arguments to support the thing that we already believe. We know that our priors are so strong in driving the way that we process information. We tend to process information to affirm our priors, to affirm the things that we already believe. That's reasoning to try to be right. When you start saying, how sure am I? as opposed to, am I sure? It actually causes you to ask yourself this really important question, which is, why am I wrong? Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference in terms of developing a much more accurate model of the world. And it actually makes you make better decisions, which makes you confident. It makes you think about all the different ways that the future can turn out that you may not have control over, how you might just tweak the probability of a good outcome while acknowledging that a bad outcome could occur so that you're just not reactive as much, so that you're just not so emotional, so that you can see the world in a more clear-eyed view mm-hmm. that really helps you move toward the most accurate mental model. What you're saying is, am I sure? All right. And then on, yeah. the, on the reverse end, how Not sh- am I sure. How sure am I? Right, right, right. Yeah. You had the, am I sure? And then how sure am I? Right. One's positive and one's negative, but you're basically asking yourself the same question. And I like the way you broke that down. And I think a lot of us should start asking ourselves questions in the positive term. And some of us most likely need to ask ourselves, what's a positive way of asking myself this question? What's a negative way of asking myself this question? Yeah. So what what I would say is that I think that uh, this idea of something being negative or positive is a judgment that we put on ourselves. I think the reason why people don't want to ask, why am I wrong? Is because they think that that's a negative way to think about the world. But it's really not in the sense of, if my goal is to develop the most accurate model of the objective truth, and that's what I'm really trying to get to, why am I wrong is actually a very positive thing to ask yourself. Think about how much confidence it takes. Think about how much of a clear thinker you need to be to be willing to approach the world that way. 
Because what you recognize is that it's actually the most positive question you can ask yourself. You already know why you're right. That's why you believe the thing that you do. It's much more important to try to poke holes in the beliefs that you have right now or the, or the things that you're forecasting because the disasters that can occur from operating off of a belief that isn't well calibrated because you haven't explored this why am I wrong angle, that's what actually will cause your life to not turn out so good. Mm -hmm. So you can completely reframe that to say the, the fact that I'm capable, the fact that I'm willing to say why am I wrong is what makes me competent. It's what makes me a, a good thinker, a clear thinker, someone who's committed to creating long-term, really good outcomes for myself. And I also recognize that it's something unusual, that it's something people are kind of afraid to do because they're looking at it through a negative frame, whereas I'm looking at it through a positive frame. Annie, one thing that uh, struck home with me was how much your research applies to traders. For instance, if, if I'm in a trading position, I have a view that the market's going to move in my direction. Uh, I, I can be so certain of something and then the market hits my stop and I'm taken out. Then I have a moment of clarity. Now, even if I took a painful loss, how can I be so biased one minute and objective the next? Well, I think some of it has to do with honestly, just time and space. I think that we tend to be much more biased in the moment uh, mm -hmm. than we are after we have some time and space from the outcome. So like one of the questions that I ask people all the time is, hey, is there anything that you thought when you were 20 with absolute conviction that you now realize, wow, that was really <laughs> dumb that I thought that. And of course, of course. That's exactly right. That's the reaction. Well, why? Because it was a long time ago. And so it doesn't feel like it's so much part of you or part of your identity right now. And you're able to sort of see it much more objectively. So the more that we get time and space from ourselves, the more that we can view things objectively because we sort of view it as if we're looking at a different person. You know, 20-year-old Annie doesn't even feel like me. It feels like I'm thinking about someone who's a different person than I am. And when we're thinking about different people, it doesn't feel like as much of an attack on our identity. There's sort of two things that you can take from that that can help us move toward objectivity. Thing number one is that, yes, we're, we're much better at looking at other people in an objective way than looking at ourselves. So we can sort of turn that on its head and say, you know, it'd be really good. If I went and found a couple of people to engage in this amazing process with me of trying to become less biased and had them help me because I recognize that they'll see me and my bias much more objectively than I will. And likewise, I'll see them and their bias much more objectively than they will. And so we can make a pact. We can make a pact to kind of watch each other's back. So that's the first thing you can take from that sort of exercise of, you know, oh, when I was 20, everything I thought was kind of dumb. And then the other thing you can take is, well, what if I could actually sort of recreate that feeling in terms of the time traveling. And so I could start asking myself in a year, how do I think I'm going to feel about this belief, right? In a year, how do I think I'm going to view that decision that I made? And what am I likely to feel about it? In other words, just do some time traveling so that you can sort of look at yourself now as if you're some past version of yourself. Right. Um, and it actually helps you be much clearer. So a, a good example is one of the problems that poker players have that depending on what instrument you're trading, it can be true of traders as well, is that poker players, because there's this constant exchange of chips, it's kind of impossible to ignore your momentary P&L, right? It's like, it's not like I can just look at the, at the end of a month and sort of look at what my statement was, right? Like, did I win or lose? You know, the chips are going back and forth every second. And so 
uh, it's really impossible for me not to kind of be watching the ticker tick up and down. So what that means is that I can get very caught up in the momentary wins and losses. And it's very hard for me to sort of get that 10,000 foot view um, and get out of what the feeling like the momentary fluctuations are kind of everything and having this really big emotional effect on me. But obviously what I'd like to do is be able to not get so caught up in that and and think about it as terms of like, how's it going to end up, you know, at the end of a year? So that's where like time traveling exercises can be really good when you're really in the moment of some kind of downswing, which is likely to be affecting you emotionally and is actually going to distort your decision-making to say to yourself, well, do I really think that this is going to affect my P&L at the end of the year? It's a year from now, like how much did this one downtick, like, do I think this really had any kind of large effect on it? You know, and the answer is generally going to be no. And that allows you to kind of like calm down. It allows you to sort of recruit that space that you want to get so that you can view what's happening more objectively. You know, throughout the years, like you said, the the 20-year-old Annie, you know, I I go back to 20-year-old Eddie and, you know, looking at that, it sort of brings back the times when my dad would say something to me, you know, out of experience and choices that he has made and found which was the right one. And now as we grow older, we're seeing the reality of, you know what, what he said makes a lot of sense now. It's sort, yeah. of, sort of like Chuck in the Savannah, you know, I mean, right. you know, we know that, you know, Chuck wasn't moving too quick there. And it's like, you know, maybe next time the situation comes up, maybe I should know when to move. So I like this sort of play on the time machine where you go back and you go forward and it helps you with the right choice. One thing that I would really recommend to people is create a list of the kinds of things that should cause you to press the button on either the time machine or press the button on the other people machine, right? Okay, I got to go talk to some other people or I really need to do some time traveling because we all have these really good cues that should tell us that maybe we're not thinking so rationally. There's physical cues, right? Your cheeks get flushed and your heart's sort of racing and you know those physical cues that you're not in such a great emotional place so that you can't really think very well. But then there's also things that we say or internal monologue, like this is so unfair. Why didn't I see this coming? Why do things like this always happen to me? Here's a good one. Like thinking in these black and white ways, like that guy's just an idiot. That should be a stop and think and say, really, do I really think that 100% of what this person thinks is wrong? Maybe I should be considering like that in the fuller sense, or I'm an idiot. That would be another one. Or when somebody says something, just saying like, you're wrong, because it's very unlikely that someone is ever 100% wrong, right? Just as it's very unlikely that you're ever 100% right. So when you sort of get those black and white terms, things like, this is so unfair. I can't believe things like this always happen to me. These things that are about the world happening to you in this kind of unfair way, Mm -hmm. which I think that we all feel like, you know, when you make a trade, that's really high percentage to win and whatever that, that low percentage comes in, we all do it. Right. I see other people like make really bad trades all the time and they win to it. Like, why is it that I have to get punished here? those kinds of things that that you start thinking, you know, literally sit down and make a physical list, write these things down so that when those things start going through your head, it, it becomes a trigger to step back and say, hold on a second. Let me try to get some time and space from this. Let me try to talk to some other people who are kind of in on this with me, who who can help me to process this in a more rational way. Let me think about how would I feel about this in a year? So that you can start to trigger these kinds of exercises to get yourself in a more rational place. When we think about professions like poker 
or trading. You need strong technical skills, psychological, emotional skills, and uh, a feedback loop to take everything and adapt. As someone with, with both the firsthand experience and as a researcher, can you rate or order these, or are they all equally important, Annie? Oh, gosh. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, you have to have the fundamental. Right. At the base of anything, you just have to have the fundamentals. You have to understand the math. You have to be able to think probabilistically. You have to understand how to make a forecast, right? How do I map out the future? How do I create a decision tree, right? Because that's what we're doing when we're trying to weigh options, right? Is we're thinking about, okay, I've got these different options and option A has this particular possible set of outcomes and not option B has this particular possible set of outcomes. And I need to think about what the probability is of each of those outcomes. And then obviously in poker and in trading, what you have to think about is what's the rate of return. So you need to understand that sometimes you might choose a path that has a very, very low probability of success because the market is going to pay you enough for the risk that you're taking on, right? right? It's, so it's reward, right? Right. And then you obviously have to think about what's your own risk tolerance. Are you like full Kelly, half Kelly, quarter Kelly? Like you need to understand what Kelly is. That stuff is really important at the base of it. Explain Kelly. Oh, sure. So Kelly has to do with what your edge is. So what you want to think about is given that I have a certain amount of money, I need to be able to tolerate the variance that I might take on in the bet. So even though I might be making 25 cents on every dollar that I bet, if all I have is a dollar, I don't want to bet the whole dollar, even though I'm winning to the bet. Because the problem is that the time that I lose, I can't withstand it to play another day to allow my edge to realize. So Kelly is a formula that allows us to figure out what percentage of our bankroll we should bet on a given proposition. And essentially, it says you take your edge and you know you have the amount of bankroll that you have. And if you're full, Kelly, you're basically betting around your edge. But But a lot of people think that that's too much risk to take on. So uh, and that has to do with your own risk tolerance. So some people will bet full Kelly, some people will bet half that amount, and some people will bet a quarter of that amount. And it just kind of depends on what your risk tolerance is. But it's basically saying, just because I have an edge doesn't mean that I'm supposed to bet my whole bankroll. Right. What I'm supposed to think about is being able to have enough money to realize my edge over the long run. And so if you thought about it as a coin flip, how many coin flips will it take for me to get to the point where I can expect that I'll have 50% heads and 50% tail. So we know that the answer is not one, because one, you're either going to have 100% heads or 100% tails, right? So at what point will I actually be able to realize my edge? And so if you're paying me mm -hmm. two to one on that coin flip, what am I willing to bet there? So Kelly would tell you, I think it's 25% of your bankroll, but other people would say, no, well, that's way too much. You should bet 12.5% of your bankroll. So anyway, that was tangent. So, so you want these fundamentals because what I was going to say was there's, there's kind of two things that need to be piled on top of that. Thing number one is that one of the main reasons that people go broke is that they actually don't apply these bankroll management strategies. They bet too big, basically. So they overestimate their edge or they underestimate the volatility, right? So one of the two. So they think they're, they think that they're winning way more than they are which is a particular bias that we have because we want to think that we're, you know, that we're way smarter than we are in general. And so they, they bet too much money because they overestimate 
how much they're winning, or they just don't think about the volatility. So they'll say, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm getting this huge rate of return on the bet, but it could be, for example, that the bet's only going to, that, that that return is only going to realize 10% of your, the time. So if you bet all your money on something that's going to happen only 10% of the time, that means 90% of the time you're broke because you just bet way too much money on something that was only going to realize 10% of the time. And, and I think that that, that particular skill of being really good around bankroll management. So you allow your edge to actually realize so that you give yourself a chance to actually realize the win is a huge skill. And I saw so many poker players who uh, were really, really talented players. They were really good. They had very, very good fundamentals around strategy go broke simply because of that problem, because they ended up betting too much of their bankroll on, um, on a single proposition or a single game. And then the other, the other skill that I think is super, super important is this emotional control issue. So emotions. Oh goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So you can, you can have these amazing fundamentals where under really good circumstances where you're not emotional, you're just crushing the competition. But if you can't stay calm, if you get really, really, you know, on tilt about things that are happening in the short run, such that it's having a really negative effect on your decision making, I don't care that, you know, when you're at your best, you've got, you know, a ten, five or 10% edge over the field, which would be huge because when you're in that emotionally horrible state, you're actually losing. And so the question then becomes, First of all, can you get yourself so that you're calm enough so that your emotions never get you to a place where you're actually losing because it, it's degraded the quality of your decisions so much? Or if you know that your emotions will get you to an, into a place where you might be losing, can you reduce the amount of time that that happens? Or can you learn to walk away and not make decisions when you're feeling like that? Because again, I saw a lot of players who were amazing players under the best circumstances who once they got kind of emotionally lit up, once they went on tilt, they all of a sudden became the suckers in the game. And the reason why they ended up not doing well was because they were playing too much of the time under those circumstances where they right. actually became the sucker. Right. I know we have that with a thing we call revenge trading. Yeah. You've got a loss after loss and you're like, this isn't going to happen. I, you know, you got to sort of Kenny Rogers, you know, <laughs> you know, no one to fold them, uh, no one to hold them, no one to uh, you know walk away. It works, and if you can understand and apply that to your daily trade, it's going to all play out. And another thing that we say here is trade for tomorrow. Uh, you right. want to make sure that you can trade today, even if you have a bad day, that there's enough that you can come back tomorrow and trade. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So how important that piece is. I think that people spend a lot of time on trying to figure out whether their trade is winning. And I understand why, why they spend that time on that. Obviously you need that at the fundamental level, but what ends up getting ignored is, okay, I've got this winning trade. It doesn't matter how good you are. You know, there's way more possible futures that can occur than the one that will actually occur. And you can just be Pete Carroll and hit that one or two percenter. And if you've got too much money in place on that, you know, you go broke to it. Yeah. So you have to make sure that you're betting in a way that you can withstand the, the fluctuations because it is probabilistic and you've got to make sure that you're allowing these gains to realize over the long run. And you can't do that if you bet your money in a way that there is no long run for you. Andy, let's talk about adrenaline. When I was on the trading floor, there was the highest of highs and lowest of lows. I mean, there'd be days where you'd, you'd get into the pit, nothing would happen. Market really wouldn't move. But when the market 
really kicked in adrenaline. Now, in trading, like I mentioned, there's a lot of adrenaline. Can you share with us how one could stay in control with adrenaline? And we we talked about the emotions. Another thing we say in trading is leave your ego at the door. That seems to creep in and can ruin a trader. Yeah, so I think leave your ego at the door. Let me just start with that one. I think that that's really important because ego causes, I think, two problems. Problem number one is this going back to what we said about reasoning to be right versus reasoning to be accurate. In other words, that sort of approaching the world is asking why I'm right as opposed to asking why I'm wrong because you just think you're so smart. And so you're not even asking why you're wrong because like that's not even a possibility and it would bruise your ego to find out that maybe something that you thought wasn't true. And what goes along with that, which I think is incredibly important, is that ego can drive us to dismiss our competition, to look at somebody who's doing something, particularly something that is different than the kind of strategy that we might employ and immediately saying, well, they're just an idiot. And I mean, I can tell you like an an example from my own life. When I first started playing poker, my brother was teaching me and he, he sort of gave me this list of starting cards that were good to play. Now, remember, I'm a beginner here, but you know, I've got Howard Letterer, who's like a really great poker player and he's teaching me. So like, I think I'm just like all that. And I've got this, you know, instruction from him and this list. And so look at how smart I am. And so I'm playing with this sort of idea of what, what good starting cards are. And I would see people play cards that were like off the list weren't on this list that my brother had given me. And my reaction was, wow, those people are idiots. (laughs) You know, they don't have Howard Letterer's list. They're dumb. And then as I started to sort of develop a more nuanced understanding of the game, I started to understand that, no, there were circumstances under which playing hands that weren't on the list was not only okay, it was actually the primary choice, like the best choice that you could make. And that I had been dismissing these people all along really because of my ego, because I thought I was all that. And that if I had set my ego aside, and instead, when I had seen someone play a hand that was not on the list, I could have gone and talked to the list maker. I could have gone and said, hey, Howard, here's these circumstances. I saw this person play a hand that wasn't on the list that you gave me. Can you tell me why? And do you know what he would have said to me? Mm -mm. Oh, well, because I gave you that list because you were a beginner. Beginner. So I was trying to give you a list that was going to save you, you know, because you don't have a lot of experience, but here's why this person did that. Like they have more experience than you. And in this circumstance, it was actually correct. I went a very long time losing all of these learning opportunities because of my ego, because I was swatting away other people that sort of disagreed with what my brilliant strategy was. And I wasn't opening my mind to the idea that maybe they were doing things better than me. And that's really problematic. And then the other thing that that ego drives us to do is that when we do have bad outcomes, because We don't want to feel like it was our fault. We don't want to feel like it was a problem with our strategy or decision-making or something that we did. We're much more likely to just say, oh, I got unlucky because that sort of feels better. It's ego-protective. I got unlucky. And then when we do win, we're much more likely to spend a lot of time breaking our arms, patting ourselves on the back because it reinforces our ego. And what we lose is the idea that sometimes when we win, we actually didn't make such great decisions and it was actually because of luck. And it would be really good to identify that because that's going to help us make better decisions in the future. And likewise, sometimes when we lose, it's actually because of a decision that we made. And so it would be really good to identify that because again, the goal should be to become better in the future. And ego really super duper duper gets in the way of that. 
And so we want to really try to think about how can we sort of check our ego. And that's a place where, remember I said, like, if you can go get other people to help you with this, that can be really helpful because they could say, hey, you're calling that guy an idiot. Do you want to bet that that guy's actually a total idiot? They'll be able to say, I don't know, that guy's been trading for a really long time. Do you think he would have lasted this long if he was a complete idiot? You know, they can ask you those kinds of questions that can help you sort of set your ego aside. So that's kind of on the ego piece. On the adrenaline piece, I think that trying to keep your emotions calm in all ways is a good thing, both on the negative side and the positive side. And so I really recommend, first of all, some of these time traveling exercises, like when you feel yourself getting really amped up to help yourself calm yourself down by doing some of these time traveling exercises. And then also, I really, for people who do this kind of work, I think that like incorporating a mindful, some sort of mindful practice, whether it's like yoga or even like I play tennis and it's actually a super, super mindful exercise for me because there's a certain flow that you get into when you're engaging in a game like that. And I think that doing something, just something in the sort of mindfulness or meditation space in order to allow yourself to be better at kind of observing your emotions without judgment, I think is just really helpful. Improvement. Quick choices, lightning fast reflexes, decisive moves. Annie, what makes a person better in these situations? And how can one sharpen the skill of quit thinking? A good practice? What would you suggest? Yeah. So I think that the way that somebody can really sharpen quick thinking is sort of twofold. One is actually, again, kind of going back to what we talked about in the beginning. I think the more that you embrace uncertainty, the more that you can be decisive. I think that what trips us a lot of, of us up in terms of sort of the quick thinking and, and, and making decisions quickly is that we're really worried that we're not certain. And we're very afraid, well, what if I make this quick decision and it turns out badly, I'm going to feel like an idiot that mm-hmm. I didn't take more time with it. And yes, sometimes like some decisions you're afforded a lot of time, certainly. And if you are afforded the time, take the time. But you know, there's other decisions where we have a limited amount of time And we have to make the decision within that time period. And we're just so afraid of a bad outcome that it makes us indecisive. So I think that the first step is to embrace uncertainty and say, look, I don't have a lot of control over the way that things are going to turn out. And some of the time it's going to turn out badly. And okay, I'm okay with that. I understand that what I'm looking for is for enough of the results to turn out well, that in the long run, I do well in my life. And so I think that that allows you to be more decisive because you don't have this illusion that you need to be certain and you don't have as much fear over it not turning out well that you're then going to go back and self-recriminate because you just sort of say, okay, well, I I sort of knew there was some possibility it wasn't going to turn out well. So that's okay. Let me see if I can learn something from it. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's number one is this embracing of uncertainty. And then number two is actually one of the ways to make quick decision-making better, to improve your quick decision-making is to not leave the quick decision-making alone in a silo. In other words, to not say, I make gut decisions, period. I go by instinct and I just go by gut. So the deal is that decisions made by instinct and decisions made by gut can actually be really good. If you're driving along and a deer jumps in front of the car, your your gut instincts are probably going to be pretty good there. And we make gut decisions all the time. But what we have to realize is that gut decisions are decisions that have been informed by the experiences that we have in our life, right? By what we've learned from uh, the way that past decisions have turned out. And that is then informing your kind of in the moment gut decision-making. So you don't want to leave it siloed in the sense that if I said to you, well, why did you make that decision? That you would say, well, it was my gut instinct. And somehow we would find that to be a satisfactory answer. The key is 
to take those decisions that you're making in your gut and hold them up to the light of a rational process. In other words, when I say to you, why do you make that decision? And you say, well, it was my gut instinct that I don't, I don't accept that as an answer. And I say, no, I want to understand, like, why did you make that decision? And your job is to be able to explain that to me in such a way that I could reasonably repeat the decision, right? So think about it as I have to teach Annie how to make this decision. So obviously, if I say to Annie, I did it by my gut, I haven't taught her anything. I haven't made it so that she could also execute on this decision as well. Um, So now my job is to explain why my gut told me to do what I did. Now, what's really good about that is that sometimes you're going to find out, oh, my gut was pretty good. So let me reinforce that gut decision. But sometimes in the act of trying to explain it to another human being, which forces you to hold it up to a rational process, you find out, wow, I can't even explain this in any kind of coherent way. I better rethink this. And in that process, what happens is that you end up honing that quick, you know, gut decision making. I mean, another example from my own life is that, you know, I was going along playing poker and honestly, I was, I I was very successful at it Mm -hmm. and I did really well. And then I started teaching poker and I can't tell you the number of places where I would go to teach a particular strategy and I would try to explain it. And I realized I can't explain this. This is incoherent. Because the fact is that overall, you can be winning, but individual tactics that you might be employing might not be optimal, right? Like they might not be the best way to do something so so that you can have, you can be a winning player and do all sorts of little things that might be losing, but overall you're sort of winning to the situation, but that doesn't mean you're maximizing the amount you can win if you're not taking these, all of these different tactics that you're employing and examining them. Mm -hmm. So What I found in the act of teaching was I ended up really changing my game for the better because there were all sorts of places where I had just sort of accepted, well, I know this is right because I can feel that it's right and it's my experience and that's sort of what I do. And as I tried to teach it, I was like, oh, wait, this is so incoherent. I can't explain this. I actually had to go in and change what my instinct was telling me to do. Now, being a trader and uh, talking to traders, we had a thing called a routine, all right? Some uh, some traders would get a, a coffee at a special place, certain time, drink the coffee. Um, some would have a cigarette at a certain time. Some would have this uh, for breakfast at a certain time. Annie, do you have any routines before you face competition? Uh, well, first of all, I, I haven't. I, I retired from poker in 2012, so I have to think about what my old routines were. But you know, I think that uh, a lot of the the stuff for me was just around making sure that I was in a good physical and mental state to be entering to the competition. So hopefully getting enough sleep, not drinking and staying out late the night before, but also trying to make sure that I was doing some sort of physical exercise in the morning. You know, as you know, mental jobs that require a lot of mental acuity are physically very tiring. It really physically tires you out to be doing that that kind of intellectual work all the time. And so when you're playing poker, you need a lot of mental acuity and that that actually causes you to be physically tired. And obviously when you're physically tired, that then loops back in and affects your, your mental acuity. So a lot of it for me was just overall lifestyle choices around really trying to eat healthy, you know, making sure that I was maintaining my physical health and my physical endurance, making sure that I was getting a lot of sleep and then doing this kind of mind work of really trying to work really hard on how do I stay emotionally even, even though I'm experiencing 
not only these up and down fluctuations, but I'm experiencing things that sort of instinctively can feel very unfair, you know, where you've got a lot of money on the line and, you know, I bet all my money and and you call me and I am 80% to win the hand and the turn of a card that I have no control over, boom, the 20% happens and, you know, you win the hand. And it takes a lot to be able to just sort of move on and say, you know, okay, that happened. Let me get to the next hand. And that was a lot of what I was really trying to work on in terms of how was I going to sort of deal with those kinds of situations. And so that I, I wouldn't be one of those people who, you know, ended up, even though my fundamentals were really good, ended up in these emotional states so much that I actually wasn't winning to the game. Now, talking about the big wins, the big losses, we know it's part of the game. What's your mm-hmm. reminder to cut the loss short, ride a winner long? Do you set limits on losses? Do you set guidelines uh, knowing, you know what, this isn't going to happen. I'm just going to walk away from this. So here's the thing. Let me start with this. In an ideal world, a loss limit is irrational. I mean, a loss limit in the sense of I'm assuming that you're playing within your bankroll, right? So obviously you might have loss limits that just have to do with your bankroll, But assuming that you're well within your bankroll, if we were perfectly rational actors, a loss limit would be totally irrational. Meaning if I believe that I have an edge on the bet, you know, I'm not really supposed to set a loss limit on it that's much, much lower than what my bankroll would withstand. But I'm still a huge believer in loss limits for this reason. I think that one of the things that we need to do, and this has to do with setting ego aside, is to say, I need to sort of think about in the future at what points do I think that I'm likely to be less rational in my decision-making? And then kind of set contracts around that. So a loss limit would be a form of a Ulysses contract. And what a Ulysses contract is, is saying, I see an obstacle in my future where I believe that I might do something that is harmful for myself. And so therefore I want to kind of bind my hand so that I'm not able to actually act on the irrationalities that I'm likely to succumb to. So it comes from the Odyssey where Odysseus, the reason why it's called the Ulysses contract is because Odysseus's Roman name happened to be Ulysses. But Odysseus was, you know, on his boat traveling back to Penelope and he kind of knew what the obstacles on the way were. And so one of those obstacles was the island of the Sirens. And the Sirens were these uh, beings that stood on the shore. And when a, when a ship would pass, they would sing this seductive song that was so attractive to a man's ears that the they would steer the ship toward the shore and the shore was so rocky that the ship would was like a hundred percent to break apart and the crew would perish. So Odysseus knows that this is coming. And so what does he do? He asks his crew to tie his hands to the mast so that even though he can hear the siren's song, he can't actually steer the ship toward the shore. And so setting up these kinds of Ulysses contracts, I think are really important where we sort of imagine in the future, what are the obstacles? Like, what are the things that might get in our way where we can end up in this very bad place where we make very bad decisions that might cause us to like steer the ship toward the shore and die? And I think that one of those things is when we've experienced a really bad loss. And the fact is that just when we, you know, we're human beings, when we experience a loss, we get really, you know, we get upset, we get emotionally charged, our limbic systems light up. And when our limbic systems light up, the rational part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex kind of shuts down. 
And our ability for rational thought to think clearly is really, really damaged. And I think that here's a place where it's particularly damaged. You could be losing because you actually don't have an edge. Or you could be losing because you're having bad luck. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you are in a losing state, you're a very bad judge of which one it is. I think you're very likely to say, I'm just getting unlucky. And very unlikely to say, this is because I'm actually not executing very well. And obviously, if you knew that you weren't executing very well, you would stop trading. But if you think that it's just because you're getting unlucky, you do these silly things, like you start like doubling down and like pressing your position and like doing all this stuff. So I think loss limits are really important because they they act like binding your hand to the mast. What they say is, I know that after I've lost a certain amount, I am not going to be a good decision maker. And so therefore, I don't want to have to decide in that moment, is this because I was unlucky or is this because I'm actually not making good decisions? I'm going to take that decision out of my hands by setting this loss limit. And I think it's a really smart thing to do. If you can look back at your failures, I think. Oh, uh, my God. Which one? Like how many? Every So many. Okay. That's the thing, though. I mean, if and and when we can, I mean, this is probably the best uh, time to learn something is from your failures. If you can actually sort of take them apart and look at them a little bit closer, that's one of the things on the trading floor. More or less, they threw you into the fire. If you couldn't do the job, they had somebody right behind you or you would look around and see you know, what happened to that guy. And uh, learning from your failures, such a positive thing to do. And it's sad that a lot of people don't realize how important that is. I think that it is a really positive thing to do. And I think this is on both sides of the issue that once we commit that we want to learn from our failures, one thing that we do want to avoid is assuming that because we failed, we actually made bad decisions. So the important thing is to keep yourself open to all the possibilities, right? To keep yourself open to, I failed, let me examine sort of what the mix of luck and skill in that was and not try to stick it into one category or the other. What I'm just trying to pick apart in the failure is what was in my control and what wasn't. And I'm trying to just view that in a really accurate way. Because what I do see sometimes is that the people who sort of figure out, well, if I just sort of offload all my failures to luck, I'm not learning anything from it. They then kind of go to the opposite extreme, which is also a mistake, which is every time they fail, they think they're supposed to change something about the decision-making because clearly... I must have made a really bad decision because they're trying to sort of do the opposite. And what we want to do is a mix. We want to look at every failure that we have and try to identify, you know, what what was due to luck and what was due to skill. And then on the flip side, we want to do that with our winning outcomes as well. Because a lot of times what happens with winning outcomes is they sort of remain unexamined because we just sort of say, oh, we won, aren't we great? And that's it. But you want to take the winning outcomes in the same way and try to figure out what was due to luck, what was due to skill. So that you kind of understand, you know, what am I supposed to repeat in that? And what what was just like, ooh, I got lucky. And what's kind of interesting when you do that is sometimes you uncover through this examination of a win that your strategy was actually quite bad. As you sort of figure out like, oh my gosh, I had to get really lucky to actually win that. And what an amazing moment that is, because if you didn't actually do that examination, You'd assume that because you won, you should actually repeat the trade. And that's actually not a good thing to do, right? So if you can uncover sometimes through a win, like, oh, no, actually, now that I'm kind of looking at that and trying to parse that apart, I realized that was really the result of luck and I shouldn't repeat that again. That's an amazing moment. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Annie, you mentioned luck, being lucky. 
Okay. Do you believe that some people are luckier than others? So I believe that some people are luckier than others. So here's the problem. It kind of depends on what your definition of luck is. So I try to think about luck as neutral, not good luck or bad luck, as there's just a continuum of the way that things can turn out. And then luck is just the fact that where you end up, you know, once the distribution is kind of set, like you've made your decision and the distribution is set, that you're just going to land in one place or the other. So I'm going to interpret what you said to say, do some people seem to land on the right tail, you know, in sort of the good part of the distribution more than others? And I would answer, of course, by definition. I mean, if you think about it, I think about it as flipping coins, right? Like occasionally you're going to flip 10 heads in a row, you know? So there's some person who's that 10 heads in a row person. And there's somebody, you know, who's the 10 tails in a row person. Right. And that's just going to happen sort of randomly. And we can think about how much luck is in each of our individual lives. So for example, for me, I was born, well, first of all, I was born. Let's just start there. Like right. that's like, a, that's crazy. Like th- think about, think about how random that is that, that this person was born. Like that's insane. And then I was born at a time when women could own property. I was born in a country where women are allowed to read. That's crazy, right? I was born at a time when I was born at a time when it was totally normal for women to be able to go into the workplace, right? And to actually work where there weren't a lot of barriers to that happening. I was born in America, you know, which is like super free at a time when there were vaccines, right? You know, I was born to the particular parents that I had that gave me a particular genetic makeup. When I was 15, I didn't get cancer. Like, that. whoa, that's pretty lucky. So there's so much luck that happens in everybody's lives. And, you know, some people certainly are going to sort of just randomly end up on the good end of the distribution. And some people are going to randomly end up in the bad. You know, there's some person who was born in Rwanda during the Civil War. That was super unlucky. You know, that puts it in in huge perspective. I'm glad that you approached it that way. Now, Annie, before you go, uh how can somebody uh, find you online? Oh, well, thanks for asking. There's a few places. One is I'm pretty active on Twitter, so you can find me at, at Annie Duke. Cool. The other is I have a website, AnnieDuke.com, and there's lots of things you can do there. One is if you want to hire me, I do keynoting, consulting, and personal coaching in decision-making and debiasing and really decision strategy. So someone can contact me there to hire me, but also you can just contact me there. So I have lots of people who've heard me on podcasts, who've read my book, contact me through the website. And, you know, I, I try to answer every single one of them and I've gotten into some really great discussions. And some of those people have sort of become like my sharing information buddies. Like they're sending me cool articles. You know, I, I end up with these kind of long-term interactions with some people. I'm not promising that will happen, but, but I really enjoy hearing from people awesome. who've read my book or read my stuff. The other thing you can do on my website is go look at the archives of my newsletter. I send my newsletter out every single Friday. And it's really basically taking things that are happening in current events, whether it's in sports or science or politics or whatnot, and applying these kinds of skills that we've been talking about to things that are sort of relevant that week. And so you can go look at archives of it and hopefully people will want to subscribe to it because I really, you know, I'd love it to hit your inbox every Friday if you like it. But, you know, you can go read it first before you decide to subscribe. So that's, those are the kinds of things you can do through my website. And then the other place that I would love people to check out is howidecide.org. And that's a nonprofit that I co-founded. And what we do there is we create programs and curricula to 
teach critical thinking and decision skills to youth, particularly underserved youth. And then we also act as a field catalyzer and field builder in the space, trying to get cross-disciplinary energy and discussion around the importance of teaching people how to make decisions. So, you know, we teach people a lot of trigonometry in school, but did anybody ever give you a class in how to make a decision? (laughs) Uh, I was taught by nuns. They didn't really give me too much to do. Right. And wouldn't you have liked that? Like, don't you think that our world would be better off and our political discourse would be better off if people were taught how to make a decision, how to deal with information, how to process information, how to think probabilistically, how to understand what's a habit and what's not a habit and how to change those, how to understand the effect of emotions, for example, on your decision making, how to just think about in the simplest sense, if I make a decision, how do I figure out what the options are? How do I figure out what my values are? How do I figure out what my goals are? Nobody teaches you that in school. And we think it's an absolutely crucial, critical skill that should be taught. And that's what we're trying to do through the organization. So hopefully people will go look at howidecide.org and and learn about the organization. And what was that website one more time? Howidecide.org. So Annie, once again here, thank you very much for being with us. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Annie. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So as always, thanks for spending time with us. And if you enjoyed this interview, please feel free to leave us a rating or a review. It'll help us reach new traders. Thanks for spending time here. We'll see you next time. I'm Eddie Horn. Take care. Editing and post-production of this episode was done by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.